This episode of the Major Spoilers Podcast goes out to our podcast pro tips patrons, James Bricknell, Jonathan Oden, Catherine King, and Taryn Winnie. You can join these super fans and a growing community of patrons at patreon.com slash major spoilers. Get early access to shows, podcast pro tips, and exclusive content. It's all over at patreon.com slash major spoilers. The Major Spoilers podcast covers news, reviews, and of course, spoilers, and goes into details about the topics discussed. So if you haven't read, listened, or watched the items we talk about, you might want to come back later. I'm Matthew. I'm Ashley. I'm Rodrigo. And I'm Steven, and you're listening to the Major Spoilers Podcast, the podcast for pop culture and comic fans. In this issue, 1994 is back, baby, so grow out your mullet and grab your acid wash, because we're taking a look at the Ray. Plus, an old favorite returns to streaming, Steven returns to hell, Matthew returns to Alexandria, and Rodrigo returns this really tacky sweater that he got for Christmas. You can call us Ray, or you can call us Jay, or you can call us Ray J, but regardless of your nomenclature, it's the Major Spoilers Podcast, it's a 40-year-old commercial reference, and it's on the air. Welcome to issue 561 of the Major Spoilers Podcast. Thank you so much for downloading and checking us out this year, this week, this year. Hey, this, it's a new year. This, this year. Why Welcome not? Welcome to Every podcast new- is someone's first podcast. And I don't, is that Ray J commercial really 40 years old? I don't think so. That's from the 70s, bro. Well, We're from the 70s. Well. We're in our 40s. That's yeah, a commercial but, that we saw growing up. <laughs> We're but that doesn't mean it's 40. Okay, it's from 1975. All right, which so, is 43 years ago. Yeah. So that does, in fact, I was literally. Just, I was just asking if it, if it was really tw- in the 70s because it didn't feel it like really it's 40 years old. Well, you doesn't have to call me Johnson. And and Bob Newhart doesn't look like he's 88. No, Bob Newhart looks like he's 257 years old. Let us do some news. Couple of a couple of items this week. One of them I think is of big interest to Rodrigo. Uh, we've got the Animaniacs mm. returning to the Hulu series as a Hulu series. Ooh. Warner Brothers hires Walter Hamada as president of DC-based film production. And Twitch signs a multi-year deal with the Overwatch League, which kicks off on January 10th. Let's spin that Wheel of Destiny. See which <laughs> one it lands on. Wheel of Destiny. Turn, turn, turn. Tell us the lesson that we should learn. Uh, it tells you that nostalgia is alive and well over at uh, Hulu. As Hulu Anthem Television and Warner Brothers Animation are teaming to bring the Animaniacs back for a two-season run on Hulu. Now, some, mm. uh, some of I think all of us are old enough to remember the Animaniacs uh, during their first run. It was only Except you know. I was alive for this, for God's <laughs> sake. It was 1996. <laughs> you were barely alive. I was. Uh, I was in school. So hey, I was alive. School. Preschool. Well, still, I'm not, not preschool. Not preschool. Preschool kids read? can enjoy the Animaniacs. Yes, I could read. I could read chapter books. Oh, that's true. Good. I remember so, working who, in television and accidentally watching uh, Animaniacs on the satellite when I was supposed to be watching other shows. So, yeah. And what did you think? I loved it with two exceptions. Okay. Cannot stand Slappy the Squirrel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Never ever liked any moment of Slappy the Squirrel. And Buttons and Mindy literally hurts my face. Mm. But I, I mean, I liked conceptually what they were doing. I liked the the premise of the, the three main characters supposedly being associates of Bosco who got locked up for being too schmucky. 
I felt like the just anything that's an anthology, I'm down with. Okay. Rodrigo, what are your thoughts on the Animaniacs? And then we'll get to the return part. Did you like it? Oh, yeah. I loved it. I loved Animaniacs. Um, I was just the right age when they were out. Um, 16. Yep. I thought they were really funny. I thought... Um, I really, really liked the Warner Brothers and the, and Warner, the Warner sister. sister. Yeah. Yep. And kind of was annoyed at episodes that didn't feature like prominent segments with them. There were some episodes of Animaniacs where they had like basically bumpers in between other things. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually kind of wasn't as into Pinky and the Brain as everybody else was, but I, I think if you ask anybody is like, hey, what was Animaniacs like? They'd be like, Pinky and the Brain, man. Um, I love Chicken Boo, even though it was yeah. the same joke every time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Chicken Boo is a perfect example of how to do stupid, straightforward, and well. Because um, there is something so dumb about every episode of Chicken Boo. Yeah, their uh, Animaniacs really just, um, in a in a really magnificent way, carried the Warner Brothers tradition of getting classical entertainment, music, old movies, whatever, into the eyes, of, like to the eyes of children um, who did not get the references. Um, and sort of like creating this little notch in your brain that then when you finally watch, um, you know, Apocalypse Now. And yes, there was an Apocalypse Now, like almost episode long riff in <laughs> Animaniacs. Like when you finally watch Apocalypse Now, you're like, oh, this was now, what they were doing. Oh, yeah. When they did that whole Les Mis uh, episode, for example. Yep. yep. I mean, uh, and Rita and Runt is exactly that. It's yeah. like literally Bernadette Peters singing uh, show tunes to you. Yep. yep. Ashley, were you a fan of the Animaniacs? Um, I definitely fell more into the other camp that Rodrigo described. I don't particularly care for the Warner siblings, but I think Pinky and the Brain is like next level good and Maurice LaMarche deserves all of the cred and praise <laughs> that there true. is to be yeah. had. And then when they spun that off, I was like, this is better. I don't need all the dumb stuff that I don't like about the show. And then it how became did, pinky and the brain and Elmira. And I was like, this is less good. How, how yeah. did, yeah, I was going to ask how you felt about that. Cause that was an interesting, uh, interesting transition. <laughs> pinky it's Elmira. And the brain. Yeah. I think <laughs> it was maybe the first time I was aware of like, Oh, this is what happens when things are dying. Okay. <laughs> well, and it, I think precisely me, so. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, that's kind of where I started to drift away from the Animaniacs was when Bill Clinton was no longer president and they had to change the intro song because people are like, who's Bill Clinton again? And, uh, yeah. So that was not as much, uh, not as much fun after that. Uh, I enjoyed, yeah. I think everything, I would probably agree with you, Matthew on Slappy the Squirrel. Although now that we're older, I bet if you watch Slappy the Squirrel, you'd be like, yep, preach it, sister. You're right. Yep. Get those kids off my lawn. Conceptually, um, I like the idea of Slappy the Squirrel having yeah. been an old forgotten Looney Tune. Yeah. And yeah. they would like show like uh like videotape things where it's like, oh, here I am in this box set, and it's like all the Looney Tunes on like off in the corner is like Slappy Squirrel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she looks yeah. just as old, which is the best <laughs> yes. part. That I mean the thing about Slappy that's infuriating is when you are doing uh when you're doing something that is so steeped in animation and animation history and something like Animaniacs is very much throwbacky, 
to actually have a character whose sole purpose is to point out how hacky and throwbacky that kind of thing can be. Mm-hmm. It just, it, it bugged me. It didn't feel like it was conceptually part of the same set. And then there yeah. was that one, that one sexy mink for five minutes that I, oh, yeah, Minerva mink. <laughs> and the nerve of mink. Yep. Yeah. There was something yeah. wrong with that. Minerva <laughs> mink ushered, ushered a whole new age, a uh, whole new age group into furries. Oh yes. It, yes. And Oof. you don't want to do a search for her on the internet. Believe me. Um, Wait, let me I, I enjoyed Animaniacs a lot because of the music and how they yep, incorporated yeah. it. Uh, the girl that I was dating at the time, we actually tracked down, we actually bought the Animaniacs album because it just had all the classic tracks like uh, the, the countries of the world and the universe song and all of that stuff. And it was, I learned, it was really I good. learned the, the states and, and their capitals yeah. from the Animaniacs. Yeah. I literally yeah. took tests when I was like, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I try to get my kids into that. Montgomery, Alabama. Yeah. Yeah. So I take it by, I take it by all of your positive responses that are you in favor of a two season Hulu run? I am. And, there there's one simple reason behind it for me. And that reason is cartoons don't age. Well, cartoons don't age. Yakko and Wacko and dot are not going to be 20 years older. And, you know, not everybody is lucky enough to be Jillian Anderson and come back 20 years older and somehow be even more of a friggin' goddess than she was in 1993. Whereas if you come in and you're like, okay, it's now pinky in the brain time, you know that Maurice and Rob are 25 years older, but that's not necessarily going to be something that you will look at pinky in the brain and see every time you see them on screen and have your brain try and figure out where does this work in the personal continuity. And, you know, the thing that my brain does when you're trying to figure everything out and put it all together and go, oh, my God, Harrison Ford is 157 years old. <laughs> I'm sorry Han Solo is dead, but, man, they had to do something. I think I think cartoons do age, Matthew, because uh, so they're the original run of Animaniacs is now on Hulu. So right. last night I sat down. I was like, you know what? I want to go back and revisit the anim- Animaniacs. And of course, the intro theme song is playing and I'm singing along because I know all the words to it by heart. And the, you know, they tell the story of the day that the Warners escaped from the Warner Brothers water tower. And my oldest son is sitting there and he's like, what is this? And I'm like, it's the Animaniacs. He's like, you're really watching the Animaniacs? I'm like, yeah. And so he sits there and watches for a couple of minutes and he just gets up and wanders off. He was like having none of the Animaniacs. I'm like, this is good stuff. So maybe Part it's not the reason he was poo pooing it is because dad was psyched about it. <laughs> oh, well, then <laughs> I probably killed work. Then I probably should have killed Pokemon completely in this house by singing the, my version of the Pokemon theme song over and over and over again last night while I cooked dinner. Oh, yes. Pokemon, finally, it want to be the very best. Yeah, Ashley. And I don't know. Oh, song. no, I've got all yeah. sorts of rhymes and schemes for the Pokemon theme song. It's the best. Uh, Ashley, what are your thoughts on the Animaniacs returning to Hulu? You think people are going to uh, be I, like jumping all over this? I do. Um, it was. I'm actually shocked Netflix didn't pick it up because I know um, Netflix was the first streaming service to have it, and it did very well there. I think it'll be very popular. I think it'll be great for a new generation. Um, I'm not going to watch it. Why not? Because I don't care. Like, <laughs> I don't, but what if Pinky and the really Brain are a, on there? 
I had no, um, no, like I heard this news and I didn't feel anything. So, mm. you know, I might watch it eventually or if people say it's really good, but like I'm not hyped for it. Um, I'm also, I'm really starting to hit with a lot of these things. Like I get it. We all loved it when we were however old we were 20 years ago. Like, but I don't, I would rather see a new Animaniacs than more old stuff and i say right. that as someone who really likes the ducktales reboot but when i look at the landscape of pop culture um i don't need any more nostalgia bombs like i really don't <laughs> yeah rodrigo um i mean i'm interested to see what they do with it um you know animaniacs was whole cloth created for the animaniac show right mm-hmm. um, they they were making references to other things that were drawing from other things, but there was no prior work that was Animaniacs. So as with everything else, when we watched it, we sort of made all these like silent internal contracts with Animaniacs as to what they were about. I'm curious to see what of that gets carried over to the, to this new show. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, if they try to like slavishly recreate the format and they're like, okay, in this episode, we have to have a read and run. We have to have a chicken boo. We have to have a Mr. Skullhead. And then like, or if they're actually just going to take the characters that they have and make something new with them, which is the riskier proposition. But in a sense, that's what the original Animaniacs was, right? It was just this like, Oh, yeah, this wild, crazy, subversive. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, is is that contract going to be um, going to be cashed in or are they going to take the safe route and just recreate the format of Animaniacs and just, you know, have some more timely references or whatever? Yeah, I think I'm in the same boat as Ashley. I think for a lot of things, my nostalgia boat has sailed. I mean, I really enjoyed Animaniacs, watched it all the time, laughed, you know, had a lot of fun with it. Ooh, um, I'm not the grumpiest person on the show today. No, and I'm not I'm not being grumpy, <laughs> yeah. but it's just like, I'm kind of like Ashley. When they announced this, I was like, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah. And I was kind of, you know, I was really excited about DuckTales. And then, you know, I've watched like one and a half episodes and it's just like, well, okay, well, maybe I'll get back to it another time. There's just nothing that is... That's is DuckTales streaming in anywhere or do you have to go to like the Disney? Uh, it's channel? streaming on Amazon, but you have to pay for it because you have to pay oh. for like the Disney extension oh, right, right, because right. they're currently funding their evil streaming app that <laughs> we're all going to pay for. <laughs> well, which is going to be interesting because, you know, they now once this Paramount thing goes through, they'll own more than 20 percent of Hulu. So maybe they'll just say, you know what, we're just going to put it all on Hulu. Uh, I super knows? actually hope that that's what happens. Yeah, that would be nice, but I don't think it's going to happen because uh, they can look oh, no. for a nine ninety nine a month in revenue stream. So I don't know. I, you know, I'm glad that it's coming back. I hope that for people that are super excited about this, I hope that it fulfills every wish and dream that they have about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, I got through the first episode of Animaniacs last night and I was kind of like, oh, okay. And just kind of turned it off and, you know. I still remember all the great moments. Yeah. But the other uh, thing about Animaniacs but I'm just not that, as interested in it. Yeah. As good as it was, Animaniacs also existed at a time where there was very limited options. Right. True. It's like, would I have sat? Ooh, that's an through, interesting point. Yeah. Would I have sat through an episode of Animaniacs 
that was good idea, bad idea, Rita and Runt, Mindy, Mindy and Buttons, Will of Morality out. Oh, I don't know. No. I don't, I don't think you would. I don't know that I, I would have. No, and you can't. And that, well, that's partly the thing of the, the anthology. But it does bring up the question of, are the things that we love really good, or are they just the best we had at the time? Because we were re-watching Land of the Lost recently with the kid, and it does not hold up, you guys. Yeah, it didn't hold oh, up yeah. the first time I watched it back in 1970, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. It's a piece of crap. It is a piece ago. of crap now. 40 years ago, Steve. Yeah, and even before that. No, it's never been good. Uh, no, you're probably right into a, to a point and without going into a big longer discussion, which may be saved for another you know bonus uh, episode or something. But uh, you may be onto something about the only reason why so many people like and remember Gilligan's Island was because it was the only thing on at 3.30 in the afternoon and they ran it nonstop for decades. Incorrect. Gilligan's Island is perfect. Gilligan's Island is a national treasure. I'm just featuring saying. Featuring some of the classic. I'm just saying. It's probably because they're. Only thing that was on at the time. The only reason why we have it, and I'm saying we, and I say Matthew and I, the only reason why we have an appreciation for classic Looney Tunes, not the stuff that came out after 1985, classic Looney right. Tunes, Abbott and Costello, the Three Stooges, uh, you know, the, the Dead End Kids, all of that stuff is because that's what was on for our yeah. entertainment. I mean, it's the same thing, same thing with me. I experienced a lot of entertainment, sort of this syndication because, um, all of these old shows were super cheap and that's why you well, that's mm-hmm. what you saw in Mexico. You know, mm-hmm. I saw Get Smart. I used to watch Get Smart, I used to watch Gilligan's Island, yeah. I used to yeah. watch all this stuff because you know, the first run shows at the time and that's why there's like I have this weird gap in yeah. my like pop culture. You're missing like 15 years. Yeah, yeah, I am. It's like basically um it's like The Simpsons was such a big deal that it got translated right away and sent to Mexico. But that's it. Like, you know, what else happened in the early 90s? Who knows? Yeah. 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 Listeners, uh, head over to Majorspoilers.com. I want to know if you are interested in the Animaniacs, Animaniacs return to Hulu. If you're excited for it, we've got a couple of years. 2020 is when it's supposed to debut, but it is getting a two season run. Spielberg and all the rest are involved that we know of right now. But I want to know if you are interested in that. Head over to Majorspoilers.com. Link in the show notes. Uh, hey, you have passed your deadline to get your early orders in for, what is it, April, March? I forget when. But Jupiter Jet is uh, still out there. Issue number four is coming in March. Is that right, Ashley? Issue number four is coming in Or April. March. Sorry. I think the April. solicitations just went up today on Majorspoilers.com. I don't know. Things. And I think it's the April solicitations, but here's the deal. Go out there and order copies. I see people all the time saying, oh my gosh, I just read Jupiter Jet and how great is it? Oh my, this is, is a fantastic great. little series. There's a, a guy today, I saw a retweet, I think from one of you guys, uh, or maybe the Jupiter Jet on Twitter feed, where a guy's <laughs> like, hey, I took my son to the comic book shop and let him pick oh, out his very own so series great. for the first time. And he picked up Jupiter Jet and he's loving it. I can't wait to get more. Yeah. That's a dream. Uh, somebody it else asked. Somebody else asked Ashley. Uh, I live in Europe. How do I get Jupiter Jet in Europe? Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> I want to tell people to Google things, but the nice thing to do is to encourage them to talk to their local comic book stores. Yeah. Um, 
I think sometimes people don't understand that just because I'm the creator doesn't mean I'm the person who distributes it. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's a giant <sighs> company that I have no part of. Um, but the great thing about Europe is it's the first world. So they get things through Diamond just like everyone else. And if you go yep. to your local comic book store, go to the nice ones with the nice people, they can order it for you. And if they don't, punch them in the teeth. Oh, man. That, that just brings up a whole other discussion that I'm going to have to write down because that's <laughs> something I'm really concerned about. Not punching your local comic shop in the teeth. Don't but do just that. comic nice shops people. in general. I will make. I'm going to make a note on that. Comic shops, yeah. and I'll uh, I'll I'll make a note of that, and we'll talk about that in another upcoming episode. But for now, order Jupiter Jet, and let us get to some reviews. Reviews. So we have been reviewing uh, Cullen Bunn and Brian Hurt on um, the Sixth Gun, and I just noticed that Oni Press has another series by those two called The Damned. And issue number seven comes out this week. And I was like, well, let me crack open the pages of this and see what it's like. I know nothing else besides what the inside front cover said and what was in the issue. So apparently, apparently Eddie, um, his mom accidentally died or died on purpose or something. And he wants to bring her back from the afterlife. And so he kills himself so he can go to the other side and track her down. What? Meanwhile, he has entrusted his brother Morgan to watch over his body and make sure nothing bad happens with it. Unfortunately, someone on the other side doesn't want Eddie to find his mom and get back. And so he sent a demon horde after Morgan and the body of his brother uh, to make sure that, that, that Eddie doesn't get back into his body. This wow. takes place in the 1920s. And I know it's, it's super morbid from that description, right? This takes place in the 1920s and poor Morgan must not be the smartest, the smartest person in, in the, in the world. <laughs> not the because, sharpest bulb at the bottom of the barrel. Yeah. Because as the demons are attacking his dead brother's body kind of becomes a meat shield, a weapon, a cushion for his brother's fall. Oh, there's a lot of weird. It's like, it's like weekend at Bernie's. The first movie meets. <laughs> What's that Robin Williams movie where uh, he's got to go uh, to the other side? What or dreams may come. Yeah, what dreams <laughs> may come. It's like smash those two together. Wow. And that's what the damned is. Really? It is really weird. And there's something perversely funny about it. Uh, but at the same time, they're like dealing with, you know, uh, Eddie, while he's in the afterlife, he's like, well, I'm looking for my mom. And he's got this this dead person who's leading him to the city of of the dead or some city. And they're just having this discussion where the, the ghoul is basically telling Eddie, man, you didn't think this through. You have no idea what's coming up. You're just a dumb fool for doing this and just keeps chastising him throughout the entire sequence. And then he's like, Oh, and by the way, here we are. Meet your doom. I told you <laughs> it's just, it's a weird book. And now I want to go back and read the first six issues. The art is great. The storyline is something I wasn't expecting, especially when it became funny. Uh, so I'm giving this four slices of meatloaf out of five. It's the wow. damned from Cullen Bunn and Brian Hurt. I, I say go check it out. Matthew. Oh, speaking Yo. of the dead, we've got Whoa. the walking dead. No, Stephen, we are the walking dead. I think it's we are the monsters. No, we are. We are. Woof. The youth of the nation. We are, we are, we are, we are, 
<laughs> Don't you ever make a VR Troopers reference in front of me again. How dare you, sir? Ah. Oh. Oh, to my people, that is the ultimate insult. You you talk about something that doesn't hold up. I went back and saw an episode <laughs> of VR Troopers, and man, does oh, that man not hold so up. bad, just so cringingly bad. The best part about it was the clearly super grainy 1965 Japanese footage that they were cribbing <laughs> for it. That was literally the best part of it. Yeah, you think that doesn't hold up, you should watch Tattooed Teenage Alien Fighters from Beverly Hills. Oh, no. Speaking of which, actually, I'm no. I bet that this story has speaking, none of that. Speaking of the opposite of which, uh, The Walking Dead, issue number 175, is one of those Walking Dead, uh, what we refer to in the comic biz as the excellent jumping on point, part of a new arc called New World Order. And if you've seen the cover of this issue, it features several identical guys in riot gear with heavy weaponry and armor. And I said to myself, oh, God, Kirkman's doing it again, because about every 30 to 40 episodes of The Walking Dead or issues, I guess I should say, Rick and his guys fall into the clutches of a new group of people, and the new group of people are always evil and wicked, and then somehow Rick takes over and ends up being in charge. This has happened over and over and over. So I said to myself, okay, we're going to see this again. I'm going to read this book, and I'm going to be irritated about it. And I was right on three of those five things, but I was wrong on a couple of important levels. Um, As with any issue of the walking dead where i haven't read in a while you pop up and there's suddenly characters that you have no idea who they are uh there's a character who's running around in a puffy coat and goggles calling herself princess i i love her i want her to be my new best friend it's like the first really entertainingly weird quirky character who isn't just a mass murderer in 30 or 40 issues of this book And the majority of this issue is an interview where Rick and his people are actually being headhunted and not in a terrible way for membership in a a new uh, heretofore unseen uh, settlement. And as the story goes on, little bits and pieces of things come around and you're like, Oh God, it's Negan all over again. And then it's not. And then you're like, I've seen this before, but you really haven't. And by the end of the issue, when they make their way to this new stronghold in this new place, Rick idly says to the guy, yeah, sure. How many people can you have? And he says right now, approximately 50,000. And with that line, it becomes clear that we can't, we literally cannot do the same thing that we have done three or four times before because Rick and his people are maybe 20, 25 people. This is a city of 50,000. They cannot, they can't go to war. And I was so happy to know that they couldn't go to war. And then the last panel, the last page of the issue suddenly hit me with a twist, they did something that I absolutely did not see coming. One of the major characters of this book for hundreds of issues now, literally in one panel has everything we know changed. 
and I don't want to spoil that because it's a great moment and I know it's actually out there. I was spoiled on it before I read the issue and it made me mad. So I'm not going to spoil it for you. But if you are listening and you're like, eh, I kind of zoned out of The Walking Dead, it kind of got repetitious or it felt like we were in a cycle and felt like we were doing the same thing. And please, God, no more Negan because Negan is the worst. Negan is the worst. Negan will always be the worst. This issue does break a couple of those cycles in very interesting ways. And I think that we may actually finally be seeing something new, even if it's just a new twist on that formula of Rick and his people show up and the new people don't trust them and weird things happen. So three and a half slices of meatloaf for the walking dead. Number one seventy-five. I'm hoping this goes someplace interesting. I'm hoping there's no more Negan. Yeah. I hope that the ocean is as blue as it is in my dreams. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. I, I got into an Andy Dufresne moment there. It was, there you go. Uh, I'll shut up now. Uh, Rodrigo, Witchblade is back and made it to issue number two. Yeah. Witchblade? Witchblade. No, Witchblade. That blade. That one. That blade? Yeah. That blade over there? A, a, a not entirely unreasonable question, actually, seeing as how there are like 14,000 uh, yeah. canonical Witchblades and even more non-canonical ones. Um. But this is the story of Alex. I reviewed uh, issue one of this new Witchblade series um, probably sometime last month. Yeah. <laughs> one one would imagine. Um, so uh, in Witchblade number two, we pick up right, right where the other one dropped off. She had just eviscerated a guy. Um, we saw some Witchblade powers, but no, like, physical, like, armory manifestation of it. Um, and then this issue is mostly talking. They're like, well, did you kill this guy? And she's like, well, I mean, he was a bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. We've got to ask you some more questions. Okay. Um, it's kind of what goes on in this issue. Um, there's a couple of tense moments where you think like, oh, snap, here comes a witch blade. But then she <laughs> doesn't. Um, <laughs> and that's not, it's not necessarily bad. You know, it's like uh, you can get along pretty well in a story that's tense, you know, where a character reaches for their gun and then... The, the the suspense is let out. Nothing actually happens. Everybody calms down. Like you know, that's not a it's not a bad scene. It's not bad that stuff like that happens. But now we've kind of gone two issues without like a a, a uh, like like that statement moment of like I am going to use these powers to wreck someone on purpose. Mm -hmm. um, although the very like close to the end of this, you are like maybe next issue we'll see her use these powers to wreck someone on purpose um you know there's a lot of sort of introduction to characters in the last couple issues there's a lot of kind of moving parts and and solving of a mystery um but i don't know there's just something about it where i'm like it uh, th there's something that's like weirdly irrelevant about the mystery because it's like a magic mystery. So mm -hmm. when you have, you know, 
mystical occlusion of things and you're like well are clues really gonna help us in this situation and um, I'm just kind of sitting here waiting for you know waiting for the moment that we all know is gonna happen where the character accepts her destiny as the witch blade and starts wrecking people you know not that it has to be all action but you know it's like you know that moment's gonna happen and now we've gone two whole issues without that moment happening hopefully it'll happen by issue three um the art is good i really like it um it's got you know good good action good um character design it's very enjoyable i'm gonna give it two and a half slices of meatloaf that's you know uh, a solid solid book um nothing wrong with it really i'm just like i'm like okay all right, get to get to the good stuff. Gets to the witch blatant, and it hasn't happened yet. So <laughs> mm, that's too bad. Yep. All right. Well, there you go, ladies and gentlemen. Ashley, you've got Heck an interesting yeah. original graphic novel for us that I believe we may be looking at sometime in the future. What? Yeah, I didn't know that. No, that's I all right. Just break it down for us. Give us a schedule. give us a sneak peek. That way, everybody can rush out and buy this book now. <laughs> Um, and uh, I'm and not, I wasn't going to spoiler spoiler anyway. This is a Kickstarter book that I funded uh, last year uh, okay. and uh, post their Kickstarter success because it was wildly successful. Uh, it is being picked up by Image Comics for larger distribution later this year. Uh, but suckers, mine came at the end of December, <laughs> so I read it. Uh, this book is called Bingo Love from T. Franklin and Jen St. Ange. Uh, I originally Kickstarted it because I really like Jen's work. She's an amazing Canadian artist. I've interviewed her for major spoilers yep. and um, tricked her into drawing a variant cover for Jupiter Jet number two. So <laughs> that's all you have to do, kids. Buy other people's work and then someday you can hire them yourselves. Uh, Bingo Love is an OGN that I'm pretty sure they're going to distribute through Image as such. Um, I don't think there's enough pages in it for it to break down as a no it's 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 series? being it's being released as a just an original graphic novel in fact i believe it's coming out in march because they just sent out the advanced trades for from now until march there you go um yeah. so bingo love is a pretty straightforward love story in the fact that like you know how it goes right Girl meets girl, girl and girl kiss, girl and girl have to break up, girl and girl get together again. All of those classic beats are there, um, except it's about nice lesbians instead of nice straight people. It stars Hazel Johnson and Mari McRae, who are an awesomely diverse couple. Uh, but unfortunately, they meet at a church bingo game in a time where their family's not so happy about them kissing on each other. And it tells the story of their... 50-year romance that involves, well, Aww. I guess 75-year romance, but the 50 years that they're apart and what brings them back together. It is very, very sweet. It is very, very earnest. You can tell that this is a story that T. Franklin, the writer, has been thinking about for a while. You can see what she loves about both of these characters. Hazel and Mari are really cool ladies. I would like to have known them at any point in their lives. And you understand what the characters love about each other. And I think that's a trick a real trick to writing what is essentially uh, a romance story. I'm not a romantic person myself, and these kind of stories don't generally appeal to me. But if you can convince me why these people deserve to be together, that I'm in whole cloth. I also really love stories where people are like destined to be together but can't. So I was kind of in on this from the beginning. <laughs> I think the the bingo, because 
you know, Bingo obviously plays an important part in their courtship. I think that framing device is really cute and unexpected because I never played Bingo outside of my elementary school classes when I was also watching Animaniacs. So (laughs) I don't really understand the cultural impact of it or really even why people like it. But it is very sweet and it adds to the retro stylings of this book. I think if you're into inclusivity, I think if you're into love stories, I think if you're into cool art, that this is a great story. I think it's a great addition to the larger comics canon and that these are, I want to see more stuff like this. So I hope that, uh, I hope that this team gets to go on to do more work together or separately. Um, with the exception of the fact that the story is pretty much what you expect it to be. Um, it's almost perfect. So I'll give it a four, four out of five slices of meatloaf, but I can't wait to talk about it more. Yeah. Yeah, Cause I know we'll Matthew's going to get all sappy about it. <laughs> I do like yeah. sappy books. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Some uh, good recommendations for books. I don't think there was a single avoid this book in our uh, reviews this week, but listeners head over to majorspoilers.com where you can find all sorts of other reviews, including retro reviews that it shows up on Sundays And when you go over to the site on Sundays, you will also find the major spoilers poll of the week. Week, 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 week. This is our penultimate original favorite cover edition because in two weeks it's all going to change up. Which cover do you like the most, Ashley Victoria Robinson? Is it the killing joke with the Joker taking a picture there on the front? Or. Uncanny X-Men number 141. This is the one that has Wolverine and Kitty Pride against the wall. And there's all oh, these this. deceased wanted. They're in the spotlight. And I didn't realize until just now, you could kind of look at these. If you don't know what the stories are about, the issues are about, mm-hmm. you could look at the killing joke and he's saying smile and taking a picture. And then he's taking a picture of Wolverine and Kitty <laughs> Pride. there in the spotlight. <laughs> that's a weird that's, placement. That's super funny. Um, yeah. It makes me like that cover a little more. Um, <laughs> this is really easy for me because one of these covers has a character that I'm sick of and I think needs to go back into the DC Comics toy box for 50 or so years. And the other one has two of my favorite X-Men on it. Um, so I definitely have to say the cover that is the beginning to... Uh, oh, my God. I can't remember what that storyline's called. And they made it into a movie. Great. Days of Future Days Past. Of future Days of Future Past. Past. There you go. That. Um, I think The Killing Joke is a story that has transcended to the modern age a little bit better than Days of Future Past. There's yeah. a lot of Chris Claremont thought bubbles going on in that book. But I really do love that cover. I love Kitty Pride. Um, both of them have been homaged a lot. I'm just kind of like the nostalgia. I'm super burned out on the Joker. And um, while the killing joke is wildly important, it's also troubling. It's a troubling story that I have troubles with and more troubles with since I first read it when I was 16. Uh, So I feel like on principle, I should choose it. So I'm going to go with the Uncanny X-Men. I think think we both read the killing joke when we were 16. Unfortunately, there's 20 years between us on that. Not at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, you know. I like the killing joke because it, you know, that cover draws you in. You don't really kind of know what's going on, but I got to tell you that the cover art has always and still today creeps me the F out. And I, I don't like that cover. I do like the uncanny X-Men 141 because all of a sudden, you know what a spotlight means. You know what being hunted is uh, like. And then you see all of these characters with, you know, killed, deceased, wanted. And then you see two characters who look, you know, vastly older than what you know, 
suddenly appearing on the front and you you want to know, my gosh, what is going on in this book? It doesn't even say Days of Future Past on the front. It just says Uncanny X-Men. And then you know that you have to pick up this book and read it. So Spoilers for me, Days of Future Past. <laughs> yeah. For me, uh, I went with Uncanny X-Men 141. Rodrigo, what about you? Which which one of these uh, covers do you like most? Uh, well, it's uh, it th- these these two are really interesting because they it, it's a, a comparison of two very different styles. Like uh, this, uh, the X Men cover is very comics, right? Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. it's it's just a very good execution of Superman's head has been turned into an ant's head, right? <laughs> It's just like all your all the X Men are dead. Wolverine has Reed Richard sideburns. What is happening, right? And it's like it draws you in that way. Whereas uh, the Killing Joke cover, which is a great Joker, right? It's like if you look at Joker designs, this Joker is probably one of the quintessential ones. With like just like having like the two extremes of like uh, a guy with a mustache painted on or, or with p- white paint on his mustache on one end and whatever that Blanca looking guy was from, uh, the, uh, the cartoon <laughs> of, of the Batman, you know, it's like this, this guy's like right in the middle. It's like great Joker, creepy. Um, and the important thing is that this is a, basically a panel from the comic. And when you get to that panel from the comic, you're yeah. like, Oh my God, you know, it's like, yeah. you get that then, so the killing joke is kind of setting up something, whereas the X-Men one is like, find out inside. And, and this moment literally never happens in the mm-hmm. story. Um, that said, there's just something that's really classic about the, that uncanny X-Men thing. It's one of those uh, motifs that gets seen over and over and over again in comics that are legitimate uh, like references to it i think the other day i saw a rick and morty riff on it like that was like a purposeful parody Mm -hmm. um there's a really cool doctor who cover with the 12th doctor and his 11 previous incarnations mm -hmm. behind him on the wall yeah i mean these that's why these are iconic covers i mean it is the killing joke has been done a couple of other times it's something people instantly recognize yeah so you know for me just on the on the pure covers, I, I'd have to go with uh, Uncanny X Men. There's just something that is fundamentally and 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 very much comics about this cover. Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah. and then if we're going on the worth of the story, then I kind of hate the Killing Joke, so that doesn't help. <laughs> yeah, now we're just going by cover alone. <laughs> yep. Which yep. brings us to you, Matthew. Well, I was always told never to judge a book by its cover. <laughs> But it's interesting to me that these two are head-to-head, because when you look at them, the one thing that pops out to me is these are two very similar artists. Brian Bolland and John Byrne are almost exactly the same age. They both broke into comics at around the same time, uh, and they both came out of fan comics when, you know, Byrne started doing Iron Fist in, like, 77. Bolland was doing uh, Judge Dredd, I think for IPC and their careers have followed very similar arcs. And at this point, you know, in time, well, these are actually different points in time. They're about six years apart, but at these points in time, they're kind of the new hotness at their company and DC for Boland and 
Marvel for Burn. And it's fascinating to me to just, just look and see the similarity in their approach, but the difference in this particular composition, because the Joker is all about his face. It is one person. It is close up. It is personal. It's terrifying. I hate that cover. I hate that story. I hate that book, but that's another story. That cover grabs you. It feels like the Joker just showed up in your house and that's terrible. And no one should have to live through that. But when you look at that X-Men cover, there's so much implied action in that frozen shot. I mean, the implication here is that Wolverine has just been caught by the Sentinel death police, and he's about to open a can of whoop ass on some people. And you can hear, you know, sirens in the background and you can kind of imagine that spotlight moving back and forth and then suddenly catching him like some Steve McQueen movie. But the real testament to me the real moment that makes the decision is when i look at the killing joke i see what feels like the first panel of what could be a good story when i look at the x-men i see an encapsulation that works as a comic book cover and tells me this is what you can expect and this is what you are going to feel or what we want you to feel when you're reading this book and so for me the X-Men cover is my choice because it's more successful in communicating to me. This is the, the tone. This is what we're looking for. This is what you're going to feel supposedly reading this book. Whereas the killing joke is a almost a silver age thing of here's this weird moment and you want to know what's happening and why is there a gorilla jumping up and down on Batman's head? You want to read more. But it's not necessarily something that drags you in and gives you an idea of what's inside the book. And I think that that, that gives that X-Men cover just that little edge for me. All right, cool. So 100% of us uh, like the Uncanny X-Men 141 cover. How mm -hmm. has everyone voted so far this week? 60% of the voters leaning towards Uncanny X-Men. 40% still in the running, Joker. You're still in the running, even though Jared Leto has damaged your stock so incredibly badly. Uh, and, you know what? Eh, it's fine. It's fine. He's got a tattoo on his forehead that says damaged. We live in an era where you have to just literally spell it out. But any vote could make the difference six people could come in vote for the joker and turn this into a fight yes there you go uh so you got to do that by heading over to majorspoilers.com and casting your vote do it now do it often do it do it do it yep hey do let's it. talk about the ray you don't do it let us talk about the ray so ashley what do we know about what do we know about the ray different ray there He's um uh, he's the best part of Crisis on Earth X. He's that the most, is not true. He's the most amazing gift that the Flash TV show has given me in years. He's played by the cute werewolf from Being a Human, and Citizen Cold is his boyfriend. And none of that is true with this comic. He's uh <laughs> he's a boring straight dude who has sun powers that his dad used to have. And his dad was like, you can't go outside because you're allergic to the sun. And that was a lie. And he's got a jerk cousin and he fights Superboy on, in Hawaii. That's mostly what we know about him. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, so give us a little background, Matthew, on, on Ray. I know um, Ashley gave you a little bit about his dad used to be the original Ray. 
Right. His dad's name was Happy, which is like the best name ever. <laughs> well, his dad's name is Langford, but yeah, they call him Happy. Back in 1940, Quality Comics had a bunch of heroes. One of them was the Ray. When DC acquired the Quality Heroes, they turned them into the Freedom Fighters on Earth-X. And somehow, even though he would have been 157 years old, Happy Terrell had a son. And in, I think, 90, 92 or 93, they did kind of a trial balloon, a six-issue limited series that came before this that gave us basically the story that we see in issue one in the course of three pages. Only it took six issues and had the art of Joe Quesada. So you can make of that what you will. But Ray Terrell let me just say, Let me just say this. I read that mm-hmm. zero issue that, yeah. um, oh, my God. It's what I hate about <laughs> 90s comics. You know, there's a lot to hate about any given era of comics. And the people who grew up with 90s comics adore those tropes the way you and I adore Crisis on Infinite I know, it's just my personal taste is, man, when I, I, and I know, here's the thing. When this was happening, I really didn't have a problem with it. I was like, yeah, that looks pretty cool. And now today I look at it and go, look at all those scratchy lines. Look at all those unwasted pencil marks. As a counterpoint, I I will say that. As somebody who grew up in the reading 90s comics, I hate zero issues. <laughs> <laughs> they are they are the worst, but I can't yeah. believe that you're talking smack about some Howard Porter art here. I know. True. Well, no, I'm talking about specifically the zero issue, which I believe was oh, not okay. Howard Porter. The zero hour was the not zero. Howard. The zero yeah. issue, I believe, was um, uh, Casada art, isn't it? Mm, I don't know. Oh, yeah, I don't know either. But... Smack about him, I guess. Yeah, yeah but yeah. <laughs> um, Priest yep. Porter Jones is what the zero issue says okay. on the cover. All right. Really? All right. Oh, well, heck. I don't know. I will say this, though. The actual story in these issues and the, the actual art being done is basically a fish out of water story where Ray has no friends because mm-hmm. he grew up in his living room. And now all of a sudden he's incredibly super powerful. And he's trying to get along in a world that, you know, he doesn't really understand. And Christopher Priest writes the hell out of that. Oh, man. I love Priest. Christopher love Priest. Priest. Really fascinating because, I mean, that's his pen name, right? Or is that his real name? I forget which one is which. He, he I believe Priest is name. the pen name. Okay. He was, he was born, I believe, Jim Owsley and yeah. was an editor at Marvel forever and legally changed his name to Priest. Yeah. Christopher Priest um, in the 90s, I want to say. If you read, and this is what's this is what's great about having original issues that you can go in and read. Letters pages, letters pages, letters pages. I've been talking about this with Matthew on our other podcast, um, uh, the Legion Clubhouse, where if you go in and read the letters pages, it is an eye opening glimpse at not only the time period, but maybe even future future creators writing in. But in the mm. back of the first issue. Um, priest is telling the story of how he came out and saying, uh, I'm going to be called priest from now on Christopher priest. And I'm going to write this book called the Ray. And he's trying to convince uh, other people in his office about it. It's just fascinating. And it's not, it's yep. like, I'm sure it's uh, elaborated uh, upon. I'm sure it's embellished. Uh, but when you go and read either the Christopher priest or the, uh, the Jim Owsley, uh, Wikipedia page, it doesn't mention mm-hmm. any of that crazy stuff mm-hmm. about how he got his name, Christopher priest or any of that. So, right. uh, yeah, it's worth checking out. Yep. And I really, there's one thing that I do dearly love about this. Well, the first issue, especially, but anything, uh, 
that that Owsley slash Priest does is the voices of characters when they're speaking in slang feel authentic because Superboy in the 90s was a character who felt very much like a way over the top Brandon from uh, yeah. 90210 trying yeah. to fit in with cool kids. Priest Superboy, when he's saying things like, look, I just want to chill. Why are you fronting me? Yeah. All of these, you know, the, the things that so many comic characters said in the 90s to try and indicate character, to indicate toughness, in these hands, in this writer's hands, actually feels well done. It actually feels authentic. It feels like something that makes sense for the character. And it feels like, I don't know, somehow that voice feels more authentic than it does just from Superboy going, Hey, hey, don't call me Superboy, you guys. I don't know. I'm the Metropolis kid. Yeah. Um, I don't, I, it's interesting to see that here's how people talk in the time period. And that's going to happen no matter what. Right. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure that I remember anyone in the nineties ever saying rot as much as, as that was Ray so does. ridiculous. I was like, there's no way an actual human person said that. Actually, people did say that. Ah, no, it, they did. They said it to avoid <laughs> cursing. Ah, they, smashing pumpkins. They also they called each other a hose pail to avoid saying a dirty word. Yeah, but I just True remember fact. as a casual, just rot. Never remember that. Actually, I think that's a priestism. And you maybe. know how in in every episode of Simon Furman's Transformers story, somebody is like a vast predatory bird. It's a Furmanism. That's a priestism. There's a couple of other priestisms, and most of them are surrounding Black Canary mm. in issue six on this run that keep popping up that I find quite. So that's another thing that people, that's an interesting aspect about this because there was the six issue miniseries. Then mm-hmm. he was a member of the justice league. Then he got this series, uh, the rated. And at one point he's has a relationship with black Canary. Uh, that is more than just in mm-hmm. pals. Uh, but it is yeah. interesting that all of his stories that we're seeing in here is him writing letters to Black Canary or, or, you know, writing a book or whatever that he's delivering and dropping off to her, to her uh, P.O. box. Yeah. She's kind of his superhero sponsor in these yeah. early stories. Yeah. And it's clear that he has a serious thing for her and she's just kind of like, well, you're cute. <laughs> yeah. So you're cute and I'm Black Canary. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now f- for Howard Porter's art, um, I don't know if people know about that but it, didn't he like damage his hand severely he had right a about this time car accident yeah and uh damaged his hand and couldn't draw and the mm-hmm. only thing he could do for a year was um he worked as a bus driver yeah he worked and, in banking yeah uh and then he came back which is why he's drawing now i think he's drawing the flash now he did yeah, apocalypse art, for a while um it, but his style has changed mm-hmm. a lot especially from this era stuff like the ray stuff like uh kyle rayner green lantern mm-hmm. underworld um, unleashed or, yeah. or jla like you can really you can tell it's different mm-hmm. and he's doing like uh, right now he's doing scooby apocalypse Mm-hmm. Um, and some other stuff and he follows us. Uh, I like him. I've met him. Uh, he was on a panel that I, uh, hosted a couple of years ago at, uh, Nerdtacular. 
and uh, just an all around uh, nice guy. And we've gone back and forth on his art style and he knows that his art style has changed um, mainly because he had to reteach himself how to draw. So kind of some interesting things there. That's, that's hardcore right there. Yeah, it is. No, it really is dedication to the art. So when I go back and look at nineties art, that's a style today. Not a style that I'm a big fan of. I'm not saying Howard Porter is awful, but man, some of those, some of those uh, pockets and stretchy, scratchy bits I could do without. He does work with an inker in these issues, Andrew Papoy, and it is production of the era. So the colors are kind of garish Mm -hmm, and the colors mm -hmm. are, you know, the paper uh, reproduction in these original issues was. (laughs) And of course, you know, if you look at issue one. Issue one has a glow in the dark foil variant cover, maybe. Oh, I have I can, that glow I, in the dark foil I've, variant cover. I've got that one too. I had this entire run. I really enjoyed the Ray. I, I read the Ray probably as fanatical as I was reading uh, the Flash uh, at this time. It was the Ray, Flash, Aztec, Batman. Those were the four that I would um, always be picking up uh, w- during this run. And it didn't, this didn't run for super long. It ran what fourteen issues? Oh, the Ray went more than fourteen. Oh, maybe I'm just I thinking think the of the Ray went forty odd issues. Oh, forty odd issues. Okay. Um, yeah. It made it all the way through zero hour, and I mm-hmm. want to. Well, say zero hour was only six issues away from where this this book picks up, where this book starts. Oh boy, zero, zero hour was ninety four, but zero hour killed a lot of books, and I want to say the Ray's book went like forty. I don't know. Yeah. What, uh, so what do you guys think of these stories? Uh, the one thing that I did say before the show was, wow, this does not collect well in a, in a trade because it's like it's, <laughs> five issues of stuff, big cliffhanger, then zero hour. For yeah. Nine, the the nine, narrative thrust is not great in this particular collection. For 1990, this feels oddly throwbacky serial kind of storytelling. This feels more early eighties to me. Where the issues are like, oh, remember this happened last issue, or here's two pages of somebody that's on slow boil for a later issue. Mm-hmm. And each, it, it's not like an arc. Each issue is just like, here's some things that happened. Yeah. And I yeah, he goes up an issue as a chicken. And, and some things get set up like the, um, uh, what's his name? Mask. Is it Black Mask? No. What is the computer generated villain's name that he's fighting in this? Um, this is Phoenix, how much attention we played. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. Uh, so, you know, that Dirk. plays a big role going forward. Polaris shows up. There's some bits Dr. going Polaris. on there. Um, yeah. Dr. Polaris fights his dad fights his dad. So there's a whole, like, I don't know. I, his dad big bird. What the hell I, is that? Cause he's big and yellow. I know. His costume's but why, yellow. What kind of reference is that for a hot, you know, this cool dude in the nineties, you're like, I'm going to, I'm going to reference Sesame oh. street. Big Bird well, was I, big I, in the nineties, I guess. Yeah, the movie. I also, if, <laughs> but if you were if you were stuck inside and your only friend was the TV, wouldn't you make bad references? Like that's what I chalked Probably. a lot of this and rot up to. I was like, oh, you just don't know how to be a. Yeah, he person. watches BBC. Okay. Well, the, and I, there are a lot of elements in. Was it in the Justice League series where he was like really had no interpersonal yeah, skills? Yeah. Yeah, he he's not a person person. He's yeah. a terrible person. And that's because he, you know, was raised by a Magnavox, as was I, and I'm not at all offended. 
Mm-hmm. There's a, I mean, those, uh, what is it, issue three and four, where it gets down into the, the daddy issue fight, where I told mm-hmm. you not to do this, we're going to fight, we're going to have it out, you're no good as a son. Uh, uh, that's pretty intense stuff. It is. That's another priest thing that he'll really get into, is he'll delve into some uncomfortable familial topics and interpersonal topics and it's hard to read those issues yeah you know when he's he's beating on his son and you're like dude aren't you 150 stop beating on your son he doesn't age well he's made of light yeah he is light doesn't get old neither do cartoons speaking of you know what else was going on while this series was was uh being produced the animaniacs This episode is an Ouroboros eating its own tail. There you go. Rodrigo, uh, some thoughts on, on these issues, please. Or the Ray in general. I mean, I don't know if this is your first encounter with the Ray. Uh, Ray has shown up in the Justice League, the animated series. He's had his, his yeah. own action figure. Um, he's yeah, shown up in recently in The Seed. I mean, he's all over the place lately. Yeah, it's not it's not the first time I've seen the Ray um, either, Ray, because we've read some old, old stuff just for the show. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, you know, it's like the Ray is a guy who's always around where, um, you know, it's like, uh, they're like, Oh, we're going to have a giant shot with lots of superheroes. I'll put a yellow, yellow fin guy in the mm-hmm. back there. Mm-hmm. And there's a Ray. You've seen him. Um, so as a, as a nineties kid, um, there are a lot of things about this that I like. I like the black on yellow thing. Um, and I'm just like, yeah. looking oh, when, through he, and when being, he's flying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great. And I'm like looking through and I'm like, when was sunspot made and who owns it? <laughs> 84 Marvel. Yeah. So, I mean, that's cool. You know, everybody, everybody borrows and, and repurposes yeah. that. That's okay. Kirby dots are very um, common. You know, one, once again, like after that, they're, they're, they're going to change that to be sunfires look later. Um, I I don't know. There's something about the way that this is sort of narrated or just paced that I just didn't like. Mm. Um, it's it's kind of weird where I'm like, what is this series about? What is actually happening here? And you know, there's a lot of the like Peter Parker, like, oh no, I'm I'm late for my mm-hmm. job. Yeah, and how will I yeah. make my rent? Yeah. Why did I buy this stereo? But as a character literally points out, the ray is basically omnipotent. You know, it's like he can fly at the speed of light. He can go wherever he wants. He's, you know, essentially unkillable, can shoot blasts of energy. He's probably super strong because why not? Um, <laughs> and it's like, it's just not the same when a character is that powerful. It's like, how could the ray ever be late for work? Um Especially because he's so nonchalant about using his powers, which then gets pointed out when he brief, like briefly loses them. He's like, oh, no, I'm in the middle of a crowded park and I'm late for work. And he just like jumps up in the air and just like falls on his face because his powers are gone briefly. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's like also like the core daddy issues to it. I just like I wasn't feeling it. Um, I think really because the dad just really always came across as a jerk. And then Mm -hmm. towards the end of that, they're like, father, I am beginning to understand you. And I'm like, why? Like, he's a huge jerk, like a huge, huge jerk. It's pretty difficult to empathize with Daddy Ray. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, what's really interesting is to compare the legacy dynamic between the original Ray and Ray Terrell here and Starman and his dad, Starman. Similar. It's it's, well, not to the point where Starman is like, you're not worthy of holding the cosmic rod, son. He's, he's basically like, look, your brother was better. He's dead. I guess we have to take you. This one's like, you're not worthy because you're a jerk. Yeah, Starman really didn't want to be Starman, but right. kind of felt like he had to be. Right, right. And right. I think I, I think that the the real killer about Happy Terrell in these issues is the fact that the best scene with him in it is the scene where John Jones calmly explains to him that what he's doing is not telepathy <laughs> and then brain blasts him so hard that oh, he man. turns into a Muppet. He's like, This is telepathy. And I'm like, Gail, Yeah, John. Gail yeah, Simone, John. if you are listening, this can be your new concussive concussive blast versus uh, uh heat ray oh, sh- uh discussion on twitter <laughs> but yeah that that is a very satisfying moment and i think that that kind of explains at least the weakness of collecting these issues the way that they did mm-hmm. is happy terrell gets six issues of being a total d-bag and there isn't really any any closure there isn't really any kind of change and even though as Rodrigo pointed out, Ray kind of warms up to his dad. It doesn't feel motivated. It feels random, like, well, and now we have to start wrapping this up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think, I don't feel like that's necessarily, again, a complaint about the book or the material itself. I think it's a complaint about modern trade paperback. Oh, sure. Kind of creation things ap- applied to an old story or mm-hmm. a, a previous, you know, book. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the race costume. Gotta tell race you, costume it's is always been phenomenal. a favorite. I'm glad they race kind of always looks great. I'm kind of glad they try to keep it intact in the animated show and also on the crisis on earth X thing. Um, did he have the jacket? I don't remember the jacket. He had a jacket. He had a jacket. Some... He had a helmet, too. Yeah. And I will say, CW, not great at helmets. Yeah, that mm-hmm. helmet looked more like the Golden Age Adam than the mm-hmm. Golden Age Ray. I mm-hmm. admire that they did it. <laughs> I, have, these... I have kind of a problem with those golden helmets and that there's a lot of guys with golden helmets. Like, like the mm-hmm. Rocketeer. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, forget that. Fate. Fate, Aztec, a Guardian, yeah. mm-hmm. like there's all these guys with like that sort of like Romanesque, like yeah. Centurion gold helmet. Mm-hmm. I bet like, you do ten guys wearing golden DC helmets. Right? I bet you yeah. could. I mean, Rodrigo's named half of them right there. Do he did miss, mission the uh, what's his name, Sentinel. Um, yeah, Guardian. Was, yeah, Guardian. Guardian. Yeah, yeah. You could do it, Matthew. Do it. So, um, we get a glance back to the 1990s. We get to see a character that has popped up, uh, a lot recently, uh, over at DC. Uh, he's in the, uh, he was part of the new 52. I don't know if he's around post rebirth or not. He's not. He's I just did a geek history lesson on him. So he was introduced by Steve Orlando in a one shot. And now he's like soft on the justice league when, oh, okay. He's also appearing on television, mm-hmm. um, but he doesn't have an ongoing series. Yeah, he's in the Justice League of America series that Orlando is doing with Lobo and Killer Frost and Black okay. Just called Frost now because we're making her a good guy because she's on TV. 
I'm going to call her Killer Frost. I'm going to call her Crystal Frost. Five people got that joke, but it was for those five people. That <laughs> do we want to do we want to see even more Ray? Do we want to see do we want to see a whole TV show of Ray and the Freedom Fighters? Yes! And not I just the animated more, show. I want to see more of Ray and uh, Alter Snart. Because uh, yeah, they're my just, favorite. <laughs> I love I love that interaction. And I do like the fact that throughout this story, even though it's been three universal iterations earlier, you can kind of go, yeah, okay, this could be the same guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's like, okay, I haven't met my citizen Cole oh, yet. Uh, so if, if you, you think guys, of this as the backstory. Yes, except that this, this Ray is straight. The Ray that's uh, on television and animation is not, is, is gay. Well, maybe he's uh, bi and it, just yeah, it could be, to it could be citizen cold to figure it out. Here's the thing. <laughs> if you have watched that animated show and I've got a few thoughts about the animated show. And if how it has nothing the, to do with the I live know, action stuff. Right. But if you watch the animated show, there are lines in that show that are lifted directly from these first six issues. Uh-huh. Like all the rot. No, they don't say rot, but there are, there are lines that as I was reading this, I was like, oh, that was in that animated show. That's clever. And it's, and it's there. A lot of times they're just kind of like little throwaway lines, but it shows that someone who developed or worked on that show went back and read these books and said, oh, that's a good line. I need to, to use that in the show. As far as the animated series goes, Ashley and I, I think had a conversation about this on finally Friday, about a month or so ago. Um, I, I watched the Ray. I watched it all in one sitting and it has yeah, a lot of potential better as, as movies. Yeah. This should have been a, just a straight 30 minute or full length movie because you've got like six episodes of this thing. And by the time you take out the intro and the outro, you've got like five minutes of story that you can tell. And so by the time you're done with it, you've got a 30 minute episode, which is what they should have done. I think the same, that was the same problem with Vixen. Uh, I'm not saying that this is a, that this is something people should avoid, but it really feels hard to get through because every time something's about to happen, you've got three minutes of credits and intro before you get to the next bit. Um, the animation was good. The story was good. As Ashley said, this has nothing to do. The animated show has nothing to do <laughs> with what we saw in the, in the live action show. There's a way that they can bridge those two, but man, are they completely different? <laughs> uh, Ashley, you saw the, the animated, right? Yes. Yeah. Did you like it? I liked it in that I really like this update version of mm -hmm. Ray Terrell, and I really wanted to see more of it. Um, I think there were some really good scenes in it. I enjoyed the awkward scene with the parents where Ray, as a grown man, is trying to come out and they're yeah. not having it. Um, well, they don't even I understand think, it. Yeah. I think structurally, it's flawed as a television show. And I mm. think when taken in the greater DC TV universe, it is evident from every, everything from the designs to the story point to the dialogue that it was created about a, a year, if not more, because animation does take mm -hmm. time uh, before crisis on earth X. And I do believe that is to its detriment. However, uh, yeah. with a few canon tweaks, I'd love to see more of it. And I really, really, really just want uh, Russell Tavi to be bought out of his Quantico <laughs> contract and appear on Legends of Tomorrow. Please, yeah. please, 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 and just get rid of stupid. Uh, what the hell is the steel? What is the steel? Whatever his name is, get rid of that guy. He sucks. Uh, Matthew, <laughs> the Ray 
is mm-hmm. not a firestorm creation. No. So why is he on the flash and why is he on? <laughs> okay. It's not just firestorm characters who get to be on the flash. Sometimes other characters that they don't know what to do with and can't make any money <laughs> off of will also appear on the flash. Really what it is, is the like flash. Not, didn't they? Yeah. The flash is designed to utilize people who are not tied to Superman, not tied to Batman, not tied to wonder woman, not tied to any of the properties that have their own shows. Yeah, so yeah. it's really firestorm. The guys from the freedom fighters, um, that one bizarro from the episode of Legion of Superheroes, and I think four members bizarro of Scare was on Tactics. Supergirl. That was Bizarro Supergirl. That doesn't count. Ah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's Tactics. everyone's final final Scare thoughts Tactics. here, Rodrigo, on on the Ray? Do you like this iteration? Yes or no? Um, it's like I kind of like what I'm looking at, but I I just kind of didn't wasn't feeling the the series itself it's mm-hmm. like weirdly um like scratchy and wordy and i just i i just couldn't get in the character's head you know it's like it's just kind of like weirdly unrelatable in in a lot of ways mm-hmm. but you know it it was cool to look at all right ashley i think that um if you like 90s era Robin and Superboy adjacent stories. That's Mm -hmm. definitely what this is. It feels of a piece with a lot of other um, minor DC characters who had solo series around this time. And if you like the Ray in any incarnation, this is honestly his best series. Yeah. And I think the art's really good and no one's going to tell me any different. So there (laughs) There you go. I liked it. Yeah. No, I enjoy it too. This is, you know, a nice trip down memory lane. Um, this feels like this hero trying to make his way in the world today. And he's just takes it, everything you got. I've it heard. takes everything you got. And he just does not have a cheers, a place to go where everybody knows his name because nobody everybody knows to know his, his name. name because he uses his name as his <laughs> alias. Yeah. That number, like number, just like right off the bat, first strike against this here. Yeah, as far just, as I'm concerned. What are you it's doing? Like, really? I, en- I enjoy on, it. I mean, it, there is some disjointed stuff. There is some really uncomfortable. The whole daddy issues thing is really super uncomfortable. Um, but I enjoy this. It's still a lot of fun to go back and revisit, uh, the Ray and see how far he's come. And really, I, I just really have a feeling that we're going to be seeing more of this character bigger and bolder in the near future. Matthew, Take final it. thoughts from you. 1994 in comics, specifically at DC was, uh, how shall I put this stinky and the reasons for that are myriad, but I think the primary one is that DC really lost who they were uh, in terms of who their core, their characters and their stories and their universe and tried to be something that they were not. Mm-hmm. And the Ray is a book that is successful for me as a, as a, a larger sequence, this six issue, six and a half issue thing, maybe not so much, but the Ray is successful for me in a larger vantage point because it tries to be something that's not DC. It, it is clearly Spider-Man. I mean, Owsley was on Spider-Man for years before he was priest. He mm-hmm. came over here and this is basically a Spider-Man book in the DC universe. Yeah, it's what it and feels like for good or for ill that really worked for me. So 
at a point in 1994 when DC was putting out some, well, gunfire, some uh, Chase Lawler Manhunter, some you know Primal Force. I love some Primal Force, but aren't we right in the middle of uh, Asriel? Nightfall. Nightfall is going on right. Yeah, this is going on right around the nightfall time. Three, just slightly, but yeah. there's a lot. There's a lot of bad things at DC Comics, and the Ray is one of those things that I remember as a bright spot at DC. So even though it hasn't aged particularly ah, well in the last, shut up, in the last <laughs> 25 years, it has aged well enough, and I remember well enough what it was to say that this is interesting. I would read more than just this collection mm-hmm. if I were going to read me some Ray. But you know, you can see the the shattered bits of greatness in here that could be something really above and beyond so yeah i think i think i've mentioned this book to you before matthew but you had triggered off there were a lot of things going on in the 90s at at dc comics i think the book you want to read is called the caped crusade batman and the rise of nerd culture by glenn weldon it's a fascinating unflinching look at the problems with batman and also kind of what was going on uh, it, you know there's a whole section dedicated to what happened in the 90s um but i think a lot of that is you kind of hit on it but i think it's ex- expanded upon upon quite a bit in the cape crusade batman and the rise of nerd culture you might want to go check that out mm-hmm. so yeah it's it's fascinating it it really if you are someone who loves batman this book will make you mad oh i'm not one of those i know it because it's really like here's what's wrong with batman don't you guys see what's wrong with batman Here's why Batman has become this because of this. And when you look at all of DC through the lens of that book, it makes a lot thing. It makes things a lot more clear. So there you go. Little, little side review for people. Uh, Okay. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you, Rodrigo for being part of the major spoilers podcast again this week. It's always a pleasure to have each one of you on the show. You can follow Matthew at mighty King Cobra on Twitter. Ashley can be found at Ashley V Robinson. And of course, you can find Rodrigo at Fearsome Critter. Uh, follow us all on Twitter, including Major Spoilers. And we are going to be back next time because we know that you love comics. We do too. Take care, and we will talk with you again real soon. Stop talking about comic books or I'll kill you. I don't care if the Hulk could defeat the man of This podcast is copyright 2018 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.